to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. With your wisdom and power, you created the earth and spread out the heavens. The waters in the heavens roar at your command. You make clouds appear. You send the winds from your storehouse and make lightning flash in the rain. Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 12 and 13 Contemporary English Version God's eternal power and character cannot be seen, but from the beginning of creation, God has shown what these are like by all he has made. That's why those people don't have any excuse. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Contemporary English Version Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today we are beginning the wrap-up of the series that we call The Truth in Genesis. This series has been an examination of whether the latest contemporary science supports or refutes the traditional view of the Genesis text regarding creation. We've been led on this journey by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. Dr. Sarfati is an internationally known author and the lead scientist for Creation Ministries International. He has written a number of widely selling books that bring an understandable and comprehensive scientific perspective on what empirical observations tell us about the age of the earth and the origin of life. Dr. Sarfati has sold hundreds of thousands of books, such as Refuting Evolution, Volumes 1 and 2, By Design, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, and The Genesis Account. During this series, Dr. Sarfati has been answering questions about a wide variety of topics that pertain to the evidence that supports the historicity of the literal biblical account. These topics have included methods of assigning dates to long-past events, what we really learned from studying dinosaurs, and how life cannot exist without the complex information system that is embedded in the DNA of all life. Our approach to our discussions has been to use reason, logic, and evidence to examine whether the Bible and science are indeed at odds with each other, as is often asserted today. Thus far, we have seen that nothing could be further from the truth than the assertion that we have to either accept science or the content of the traditional Christian faith. So as we begin our wrap-up of this series, today we're going to see that many of the arguments commonly used to support the truth of evolution actually turn out to be evidence against it. But before we get too far into our discussion, Dr. Sarfati, would you like to say a word of greeting to our Anchored by Truth listeners and give us some general comments? Well, good day, listeners. Uh, It's nice to be on Anchored by Truth again. It's been a good time so far. My name is Jonathan Sarfati. I'm a PhD scientist from both New Zealand and Australia, but I've lived in this country for over nine years now. I've been working for Creation Ministries International, which is creation.com. I've been doing this job for over 20 years now. 
What we do is we try to show that the Bible can be trusted from its very first chapter, the most attacked chapter by the secular world, and we show that true science supports what the Bible says. Dr. Sarfati, during our last several episodes, we have seen that there is a substantial body of scientific evidence that demonstrates that the age of the universe cannot be as old as conventional science claims. The Earth and universe are far more likely to be several thousand years old rather than several billion years old. As such, even assuming inanimate particles could somehow aggregate themselves to form self-replicating molecules, there is insufficient time for those molecules to be transformed into the vast diversity of plant and animal species that currently exist on Earth much less create a logical, purposeful, ethically animated being such as man. Could you give us a brief summary of some of the evidence that points out how life is too complex to arise from non-life by blind chance? Okay, first of all, I'd like to say that, in fact, science grew out of a Christian worldview, the idea of a divine lawmaker who's not the author of confusion, but the God of order, and who's given us dominion over the rest of creation. And that was actually a unique perspective among all the world's different philosophies. I mean, certainly ancient China, ancient Greece developed certain technology, but they never developed real experimental science because they had no idea of this overriding God of order. I mean, if you imagine Zeus and his gang were in charge of the universe, well, they're capricious. Every god has his own rule for his own domain. You couldn't do science under that worldview or under the New Age idea where the universe is one big thought who could change his mind at any moment. And also atheism. I mean, you cannot go from the proposition there is no God to the universe is orderly. So in fact, atheists doing science have to hijack the Christian worldview of a divinely, of at least an orderly universe, but they take it as a given instead of as a consequence of who God is. See, all living things have to reproduce themselves by definition, but uh, the mechanics of self-reproduction is very, very complex. We can't make a machine that can copy itself. I mean, jet planes don't have baby jets, do they? The Boeing factory makes jet planes, but it won't make you a new factory. But every living thing, even the so-called simple living thing, has to copy itself. So you've got this need for an information storage system, information processing, information copying system, and all all that requires machines, but also machines to process energy to drive those processes, as well as some surrounding membrane to keep it all together. So, so many things have to be just right for life to exist in the first place. And the basic thing is, there are many more ways of being dead than being alive. So, the idea of time and chance, even if you had millions and billions of years, is just not enough to overcome that. You need organization, which requires an organizer. Thank you for those observations. So let's get right to the main subject for today's discussion. Darwin made much of the homologous nature of certain vertebrate structures as evidence of common descent. What is homology, and what information do we now possess that Darwin did not? Why does homology fail as evidence for evolution? 
Now, see, homologous structures are meant to be similar structures, but are often used for different things. Like they'll claim that the flipper on a whale and the wing of a bird, the arm of a person are all homologous because they have this pattern of a one bone on the upper arm two bones of a lower arm, and then the five-digit pattern in the hand. You see, you find that in a lot of different creatures in the vertebrate order, the same sort of homologous pattern of limbs, and evolutionists believe that the homologous structures are due to having been inherited from a common ancestor with these structures. However, there are a lot of problems with, with this idea. The problem with the idea is, first of all, they haven't got a plausible common ancestor that has a five-digit limb pattern because they believe the first land vertebrate was something like an ichthyostega, a canthostega. But those creatures did not have five fingers. They had seven and eight fingers. So it's a bit much to say that we have this five-digit pattern because of inheritances from a common ancestor, but the common ancestor didn't have the five-digit limb pattern. The other thing is, if homologous structures came from a common ancestor, you'd expect the genes to be in common as well, because it's actually the genes that are inherited, the DNA instructions that are inherited, not the structures. But often, the homologous structures are not controlled by homologous genes, which is what Darwin would predict. And often, you expect them to have a similar embryonic development, but often the homologous structures come from different parts of the embryo. So all these things go against the idea of common ancestry. So a better explanation is common design, a common designer for the common structures. And this also points to the unity of the designer, you see. Otherwise, people could think, well, maybe there's actually multiple designers for everything we see. But the unity points to a single designer but the complexity and anomalies go against every attempt to explain it away by Darwinian evolution. Darwin acknowledged that the absence of transitional fossil evidence present in his time did not support his theory, but he appealed to future discoveries that he believed would come to his rescue. Have subsequent discoveries vindicated Darwin's confidence that the fossil record would one day demonstrate that evolution is true? Well, yes, even in his famous Origin of Species, he recognized that his theory would require innumerable intermediate forms between the different groups of creatures. He admitted the fossil record did not have these intermediate forms, and there should be huge numbers of them, especially the slow and gradual process. There should be tons of these things in between, but we don't find these intermediate forms. We find only the end forms. So Darwin acknowledged that was a fair objection people could raise against his theory. Even nowadays, when we have more fossils than with Darwin, it really hasn't helped him much. I mean, evolutionists will still trot out the handful of examples, which they claim are intermediate or transition forms, but they need innumerable numbers, huge numbers of these transition forms, not just a handful of very debatable ones. And in fact, some of the ones that were thought to be intermediate forms a number of years ago are no longer accepted as intermediate because we've found more bones which will rule them out as transitional forms. I mean, when I was at high school, I learned that Ramapithecus was an intermediate between apes and humans, but now no one believes that. They believe it's an ancestor of an orangutan of anything. Now, Darwin's excuse was the fossil record was incomplete. But in fact, objectively, that becomes a circular argument. 
What's the evidence for the incompleteness of the fossil record? Oh, it lacks the transition forms. And they use that as an excuse for why we don't find the transition form. But in fact, if you compare fossil creatures with existing creatures, you find that most existing creatures are represented, at least the family level, in the fossil record. So the fossil record is remarkably complete. So the only excuse they have, but it can't be much of an excuse because the fossil record really is complete from what we actually do know. Oh, it's a very, uh, quite an interesting one. In fact, even since I've been with Creation Ministries is the fossil called Pachycetus. See, evolutionists believe that whales evolved from some sort of land mammals. Okay. And one creature they found was called Pachycetus, and they even drew it in the teacher's journal, in the prestigious science journal, and they showed it like it was a half-whale, half-land creature. But all they found was parts of the skull and jaws and some teeth. They had nothing below the neck. They had no right to draw these things below the neck because they had no fossil bones. And when they actually did find fossil below the neck, they found it was a fast-moving land creature. Totally a land creature. And that's when you look at the modern reconstructions, it looks nothing like the intermediate link that they first thought it was. Another thing with whales is interesting, it goes back to the homology issue, is that they thought that whales evolved from a type of mammal called the mesonychids because of certain homologies they thought happened. But now when it comes to molecular similarities, they think that whales evolved from artiodactyls. That means the supposed homologies between mesonychids and whales cannot be homologies at all, in the sense of being inherited from a common ancestor, because I don't believe that anymore. So the word they use now is homoplasies, which means they look similar but can't be attributed to a common ancestor. The revolution in molecular biology did not take place until almost a hundred years after Darwin's publication of The Origin of Species. How have advances in our understanding of the atomic and molecular attributes of the cell affected the validity of the evolutionary hypothesis? Darwin himself did have some idea that the cell was quite complex because by his time, light microscopes had become extremely good, at least good enough to identify cell components. So he was actually quite baffled as to how to explain the origin of life from some sort of chemical soup. He had no idea how to explain. But now with the advances in molecular biology, the complexity of the cell is much, much greater than Darwin or any of his contemporaries could possibly have imagined. The molecular biology revolution, you could say, started in 1953 when Watson, Crick, and Wilkins worked out the double helix structure of the DNA, and that's how it could transmit information from one generation to the other because of the matching letters, you might say, bases. So you could get a complete transmission of the same information, digital information, then working out how that coded for proteins. And that's actually opened up far more complexity than Darwin knew would even be possible. And in fact, this is what led to Anthony Flew renouncing the atheism he had taught for over 50 years. He was a leading atheistic philosopher around from Oxford University. He abandoned atheism when he realized how complex the cell was. He recognized that Darwin's theory began with a being that had reproductive powers. And he realized that Darwin and Dawkins today have not the slightest clue of how this first self-reproducing thing could possibly have happened. From a probability standpoint, what does the complexity of life imply about the likelihood that life could have arisen by chance? 
is when it comes to probability arguments, the basic principle here is there are many more ways of being dead than being alive, okay? I mean, just like think about you parents listening here. Do you have to tell your children to mess up their rooms? The reason is there are many more ways of being messy than being tidy. So if you allow the kids to do their own thing, their sources of energy and time is going to produce a mess unless you tell their children to use their brain and tidy things up. So matter plus energy plus time is just not enough to produce the organization because there's so many more ways it could produce disorganization. And when you consider there are certain things like the enzymes, the proteins of life, they have to have some amazing amount of sequence specification because it has to form a precise shape to grasp the molecule it's working on. It has to have the right shape to do that and then change it into something else. So the amount of specification required to form that exact shape is incredible. And yet life has a minimum, even the simplest living thing they believe had to have a minimum of 350 enzymes to do it so you're trying to get the chance of amino acids for all these different enzymes so everything could work and then having the dna system in place having the membrane in place i mean the probability is so ridiculous i've calculated i'm trying to be as generous of the evolutionist as possible it's like a probability of one in 10 to the power of 5,000, which is a number we can't even imagine but i'll give you some way of considering thinking of your bank card with your pin okay four digit pin what's the chance of guessing the right number is 10 to the power of four because you've got 10 possible digits and four of them so 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 it's 10,000 10 to the power of four so when it comes to getting life by chance it's like trying to guess a 5,000 digit pin you think a four-digit pin is secure enough because it couldn't be worked out by chance? And in fact, if someone got your pin, your bank will tell you there's been some sort of phishing to get the pin or you left it lying around sometime because I know it's not going to happen by chance. And they'll tell you your car's been compromised and give you a new one. But imagine a 5,000-digit pin. I mean, how amazingly secure that would be. But that's the sort of chance we're talking about to get life from non-living chemicals by time and chance and energy because natural selection can't happen yet until we've had reproduction. So it's only matter plus time plus chance. The conventional explanation for the origin of life requires the existence of a widespread prebiotic primordial soup. Is there any evidence that such a soup ever existed? The scientific dogma you see in the textbooks that life began in the primordial soup and it's even reached the popular culture. So people are often surprised to realize there isn't the slightest geological evidence that such a soup ever existed because if there was such a soup producing these nitrogen-containing compounds, there should be somewhere on Earth where you'd find deposits of these things. And yet, no such deposit exists. And therefore, this is not the slightest evidence that a primordial soup ever existed. So really, I mean, isn't science supposed to be about what we can observe and test and not these hypothetical entities that have not been detected and yet should have been detected if they had existed? So this is not an argument from silence. This is actually an argument from conspicuous absence. If primordial soup existed, it should have left some trace. There is no trace, therefore it never existed. That's a valid argument called denying the consequence. Some proponents of evolution have argued that we have been able to see, quote, evolution before our eyes, unquote. For example, some have pointed to Richard Linsky's decades-long experiments on bacteria as having demonstrated the truth of evolution. 
Did Linsky's experiments show that single-celled creatures could turn into critics or creationists? Well, you see, the point of using bacteria in his tests for decades is that they have a very short generation time. So it's like having millions or billions of years of a human or other vertebrate evolution. So lots of generations are possible in this experiment. But notice these are all still single cells. There's not even any trace of becoming any sort of multicellular creature, despite these millions, billions of generations. And then the best thing he has in this experiment is some sort of bacterium that could digest citrate. What happens is that these germs have the ability already to digest citrate, but that's an anaerobic process. So in the presence of oxygen, normally that process is turned off. Why waste your time digesting this when you've got better things to digest? So it's actually automatically turned off. So therefore, in these circumstances, it won't digest it. And therefore, it might actually starve to death because it hasn't been turned off. But the process is actually still there. So what happened with these germs is that this off switch was kept on. So the off switch was disabled, which meant that this citrate digestion was kept on all the time. So in fact, here's a case of information loss, which is loss of the control switch, which left a process that was already in the bacteria, but now it was operating all the time. I mean, think about it. If you've got a car alarm, your car alarm is a nice thing to have, right? It protects against burglars. But what if the off switch was disabled and the car alarm sounded all the time? Well, it might scare the burglars away, but it might scare everyone else away too. So it's definitely not an information uphill change, not the sort of change that changes bacteria into biologists. Are there any scientists who affirm the Genesis account and who do research into biological questions from a creationist perspective? Well, yes, in fact, some of my colleagues are actually PhD biologists, like you have Dr. Robert Carter, who's a PhD geneticist, and you have Dr. Don Batten, who's a plant physiologist. We have a number of others who are specialists in biology who are doing research into things like the created kinds. Dr. Carter's trying to do research into the original genome of Adam and Eve. Quite an interesting thing to do. And yet, I think he's pretty close to working that out, looking at the genetics of people today, working out what's actually a mutation, a copying mistake, and what was actually probably original to Adam and Eve. And I think from a theological perspective, and he thinks as well, also from a scientific perspective, that everyone on Earth does seem to look like descended from a single human. Because I think even Eve was probably a clone of Adam. Well, not a complete clone because women have XX and men have XY. But what if the process was God destroying the Y chromosome of Adam and doubling the X chromosomes? You turn a boy into a girl that way. But supernaturally, okay, so even Eve was a sort of clone of Adam. So that means everyone on Earth comes from the first man, Adam. And that's what the genetics look like, because we all have information in pairs. Different genes in pairs are called alleles. And it seems that when you look at the genetics of all humans around, it looks like this biallelic distribution. So two alleles. And that would be explained if we all came from Adam. So we're inheriting his, plus some mutations as well, because we've had 6,000 years since him of degeneration. And the other creation thing they're doing in biology is investigating the boundaries of the created kinds. Like, for instance, how big is the kind? And a big part of that is how they can reproduce with each other. Because if they can reproduce with each other, form a hybrid, then they're the same created kind. So it's investigating that sort of thing. That's an important thing, too. 
What resources would you recommend for Christians who want to study more about the scientific deficiencies in evolution as an explanation for life and biodiversity? Okay, well, I think creation.com is certainly a good place to find because you've got pages on mutation. This is the Q&A page or, or frequently asked question pages. There's one on mutations, there's one on natural selection, there's one on origin of life, one on genetics, and in fact, one on anthropology, if you want to know about more about the human issues. But there are also, for the theologically inclined people, there's pages on the Bible, pages on Genesis, pages on creation compromises, though people want to add millions of years to the Bible. Pages on Noah's Ark, for instance, if you want to work out how to fit the animals on the ark. So a number of different topics are there. But also, I think if you want to start with something fairly in-depth about science, you might want one single book I'd talk to is probably Evolution's Achilles Heels, because you've got a wide variety of science and the companion DVD, which has a free study guide with it. So the big takeaway from our discussion today is that many of the traditional proofs used to demonstrate the validity of evolution actually demonstrate its unreliability as a scientific hypothesis. Homologous structures, more often than not, do not share a common embryological origin. The absence of transitional fossils really is evidence that transitional species do not exist, and Darwin's original concern for their absence has never been alleviated. And molecular biology, far from supporting evolution, has just presented even more perplexing challenges for the evolutionary hypothesis. Dr. Sarfati, we'd really like to thank you for joining us on Anchored by Truth today and throughout the series. Your insights have been invaluable and I believe will continue to be a source of inspiration for everyone who is committed to the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture. Just as a reminder to our listeners, this show as well as all the Anchored by Truth episodes, will be available by podcast shortly after the broadcast airing. So any listener today who has a friend or study group that could benefit from Dr. Sarfati's depth of knowledge can go to their favorite podcast app and search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. Today, for our closing prayer, let's listen to a prayer for our nation, especially that the light of truth would once again shine in the hearts of all of our friends and neighbors. A prayer for the nation. Almighty and sovereign Father, you are the one true and perfect ruler of all that is and all that ever will be. The stars move at your command and the cosmos stretches out by the works of your hands. If the heavens themselves and all they contain are ruled by you, then how much more are the nations of men subject to your eternal reign? Lord, we come to you today to pray for our nation, the United States of America. In our Pledge of Allegiance, we pledge that this is one nation under God. May it truly be so. May our people recognize that we owe our existence to you and that you are the rightful master of this nation, and indeed all creation. Nations rise and fall at your command, for you ordain and govern all the affairs of this world. We pray, Lord, that this nation might find favor in your sight as we turn and look to you. We know that there is much about our nation and people today that does not please you and does not conform to your will. Forgive us for this, mighty Lord, 
in too many ways we have wandered from the truths upon which we were founded. We repent of our wanderings, and especially the part we have played in them. We have too often lost sight that we will all be held accountable to you, and this has led to foolish pride and unwise presumption. Bring us to a renewed sense of your holiness and justice, and help us to rebuke our failings. Help us to humble ourselves so that we may begin again to walk straight paths as we depend on you. Lord, there are many other nations and groups in this world that would seek our harm and even our devastation. Even now, many conspire against us. We pray that you would not allow them to succeed. Do not let our stumbles become an occasion for their joy. We pray that you would confound them in their efforts to cause us harm and injury. We do not ask this on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of your mercy. Do not let them become proud by granting them a victory as we struggle for restoration. Lord, give wisdom and instruction to our leaders at all levels, both civilian and military. Turn their hearts to you and bring them into direct contact with your transforming character. Remind them that they are your stewards and that all their authority comes only from you. Let the name of your Son be lifted up in our hearts as we rejoice in the restoration and salvation he brought. We glory and hope in his name. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time when we'll continue our discussion about the truth in Genesis. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.